Let's do it. Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. It's a weekly yarn about research, science, and fidget spinners. With me, Justin Booyabase. <laughs> and me, Justin Potluck. <laughs> okay. I'll know. take it. I'll take I it. You got I me. really threw you to the lions with that one. Yeah. I'm glad we have someone who can join us in our anagram game. We take proper names and rearrange the letters to form a description of that person. Like, uh, Alec Guinness. Booyah bass? Yeah. I don't know. Just B-boy booyah bass? I think we were talking about booyah basses a few uh, few days ago. Drop the booyah bass? <laughs> yeah. Rhythm and booyah bass. Drum and booyah bass? Drum and booyah bass is good. Yeah. Um, dude, I love booyah bass. Now, I'm going to seem like a huge ignoramus by yeah. saying it's something fishy, right? Booyah yeah. bass is like a fish. Yeah, it's like a southern French Mediterranean fish soup. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Big into the, the French fish soup okay. game. What's a gumbo? Ooh, gumbo's pretty good. So gumbo is Creole. Yeah, but, is, right? but that's also fishy, right? Um, it's like, yeah, it's like a mixed seafood, but also with some meat. They'll have like some, some sausage and stuff. Um, what's it called? Andouille. A-N-D-O-U-I-L-L-E. It's like a Cajun, uh, Cajun sausage. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm disappointed. Which, it's a bit like Chinese. You know this Chinese sausage you get in like... It's often chopped up in like uh, sticky rice. Mm, yeah, yeah. Classic. That's a bit like an andouille, that kind of a sausage, kind of long, and they chop it well, up. This is very educational for me. Yeah, I have like crayfish and stuff in it too. Okay. Yeah, gumbo's pretty sweet. Well, I'm dis- served on a rice usually. I I'm think. definitely disappointed I went with fidget spinners as the random uh, extra little topic as on the intro. We should have definitely about. have been... Soups. A soup, well, fish-based soups. Yeah. That'll be for next week. We could do a whole show on but we could. soups. I'm I'm a big fan. What are we doing this week, Justin? What's our um well, we got objective of, for this episode on Jeremy Zion? We've got a lot of catch up, right? It's been... Well we do. We've been to Taiwan and Japan respectively. Yes. Um there was something deliciously fishy that I'll share with you from um Taiwan. But this episode we're gonna be interviewing someone. First interview, right? First interview. Um we've had a lot of requests. For interviews. Yep. And People I think said this you was... try to get Jordan Peterson on. Yeah. And the, he had a lot of success with his interview of Bjorn Lomborg from the Copenhagen Consensus. That's right. So, you know, I think we consider talking to him again, but that would feel like kind of rehashing a lot of what Peterson just did. You know, I don't know yeah. if he had much new ground to trod with Bjorn himself, but he did mention his elite team of economists who kind of do all the grunt work for him. And so, so you're I, telling me that we've got one of his elite economists. Yeah. Here. So we, we reached out, we put our feelers out and we got one of his economists who come on the show and talk to us. We're going to ask him kind of deep dive a bit more about their techniques and kind of the stuff that they picked up. But um, we'll talk more about what the Copenhagen consensus even is yeah. uh, and get into it a, a bit later. Most people don't even know who they are, I don't think. Okay. So very briefly, what are they and who is this young gentleman that we're having on? Well, so the Copenhagen Consensus is a foundation started by Bjorn Lomborg, and they're essentially like a consultancy company, but they consult for kind of larger government bodies like the UN and 
and kind of national governments. Um, and they try and work out from an evidence-based perspective what the best use of resources is um, amongst all the possible avenues and routes you can spend money. So kind of trying to rationalize charity, yeah. right? Like, Yeah, charity, but just, it's not about charity. It's just about resources, Yeah, right? Like if you're the UN and you have X amount of money to spend in a year in your big kitty to make the world a better place, how do you do it? Everyone's got all these ideas about what they think the best way to use the money is, mm. either all in or to scatter it out across different ideas. Um, there's probably a lot of emotion in those ideas, you know? Um, like, well, we, we probably vote for something Sydney-based. You know, we need to definitely improve the traffic in Sydney. That would yeah. be our, like, our petition to the UN. And they'd look at that and they'd be like, all right, oh, look, add, we, add, there's some benefit in that. And they'd but, be like, oh, look, maybe we have to give them a little bit. That's not yeah. that important, but maybe we'll give them, like, 0.5% of our big pie to make try and make Sydney a little bit of a better place. And mm-hmm. we'll try and sprinkle around everywhere. Or do they go all in on, like, you know, whatever it is, climate change, which is a big one, obviously, right? Like, yeah. And then so people like Bjorn go in there and they say, okay, you know, what are all the options? How much money do you have? And they kind of run all these models and try to figure out what the best use of that money is. Well, I'm excited to, yeah. uh, to talk to the young man. Who is he? Bradley Wong. Yeah. What do we know about him? What do we know about him? We know that he's a original from, from Sydney. Yeah. Um, he is a uh, living overseas. Mm-hmm. Working for the Copenhagen Consensus for something like four years now. Um, and I, I hear I, he has a killer top of the key jump shot as well. I don't know about that. I, don't I know definitely about do. That. I've seen it. But he is probably their preeminent economist. All right. I'd say. Great. We're looking forward to chatting to the, to the gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, before we do that, as we do on Jeremy's Iron, we mm-hmm. do a, a segment called News Just In where I rattle off some of the new scientific research. We're not going to chat more? No, we're going to have a chat too. We've I'm going off. in reverse. I'm, I'm kind of doing it in Roman oh, oratory style. Like oh, doing okay. The most, like the last thing first. Then I'm saying we're going to do news just in. Right. It's coming up very shortly. Oh, you're still... And now we can, can chit chat if you'd like. You're just still quickly. laying out the table of contents. Just, that's all I'm doing. Keeping our listener informed. We have two listeners now. It's good. At least, at least two. So I can refer to them well, you in mean plural. Two active listeners right now. We have... Many, many, many passive listeners, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think our listener mailbag will attest to that. We have, we've been getting just flooded lately with requests, questions, mm-hmm. uh, great feedback. Who are you? Who are you? How do I get this email address? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stop emailing me. Um, I reported uh, you as spam. All that can stuff. You, can you send me money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my mom. We have lots of Nigerian fans. <laughs> <laughs> huge, huge in Nigeria. Yeah. Um, I uh, well, we've been away, so let's have a quick, quick, very, very quick um, uh-huh. catch up. Okay. Um, you've been to Japan. I was in Japan. Yeah, Nippon. Yeah, give me the. the don't top. call Japan there. They okay, don't know Nippon. what you're talking about. Fair enough. Nippon. How how is your experience? It'll be in one of those like you know you you say someone in the street like hey you and they like look around <laughs> and they're like who me? <laughs> if you say Japan in the country, the whole country does a collective like look around. And they're like us, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like yeah yeah I'm in Japan. They're like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is Nippon. Um, well, I can continue with the um, the uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the analogies of fish based. Oh, they love soups. fish. Wow. Well, I had, I had a fish congee, a, a milk. It's called the milk fish porridge, essentially, which yeah. makes it sound delightful. But it's a, the belly of this fish called a milkfish and they put it in a congee which is like a warm porridge it's basically like it's rice it's rice right yeah but mushy they, rice they translate it as porridge so it sounds like it's, it's 
gonna be if sweet. You, if you've ever like made rice and totally ruined it, you've just made congee. That's right. And it was the most incredible experience I've had. Gastronomic experience. Really? It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And I've got this this amazing I was that guy on holiday taking photos of everything that was put in front of me, but I regret it not because What happens to those photos? I, want, I, I keep them for myself. <laughs> okay, no, I'm just wondering. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> no, like I don't have Instagram and I don't well, have. Like, yeah, because you can, you don't have a, a means of posting things easily. So, so which is cool because I mean, it's not for other people. It is actually for you. Yeah, yeah. No. What does it mean for it to be for you? Do you do you print them? I do print you them off and then put them up an album on the wall and jack off to them. That's what I do. <laughs> like, what else are you meant to do with photos? That's not what I thought you do with them. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> hey. I get to make them for me. I get to do whatever I like to my photos. I guess that's not real food porn, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Zing. Um, what, yeah. what, what was uh, your, your top experience of Japan? Uh, my top experience? Well, yeah. Or you can give us something completely boring as well, if you like. Give well, us, give I mean, it's your... hard to kind of bring it down to a top experience. Um, I well, no, say, like, I... regale me of well, Japan okay, over, the, over two hours then. Fine. <laughs> fine. Give me something quick that people can... All right. Well, okay. So, I, I told you already, but the thing that I loved, like, so much was sleeping in those capsule hotels ah. every night. It's like, it's like my biggest takeaway from that place. It's right. such an enlightened way to travel. If you're, like, in a boat, like, traveling light and being on your feet and seeing a city during the day, it's, like, literally just a cubby to sleep in. And they kick you out in the morning, and then you got to just go and do something, right? I love it's, it. It's great. You put your bag in a locker. There's no mess. You don't have a room to like that's just sitting there. Mm. Just real estate that's just unoccupied. It's like this super efficient way to use space. I don't know why my first thought goes to the movie The Fifth Element, but I feel like they were... It's a bit like that, yeah. They were sleeping and stuff like that in The Fifth Element. Yeah, but he had an apartment around that. But yeah, he had like a little capsule kind of oh, thing. Oh, right. And yeah. then remember it spun? Yes. And it like, it like yeah, yeah. washed itself and stuff. Good movie. Rudy, Rudy, what's his name? Rudy. Anyway, Corbin Dallas. Corbin Dallas. Oh, um, Ruby, Rockin', Rockin' Rudy. Rockin'. Ruby Wax. Ruby, uh, Ruby, 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 Ruby Rod. Ruby Rod. Good call. Yeah, Ruby Wax is an American come English comedian. Mm. I believe. Uh, yeah, so that was really cool. I really like those. Yeah. Great. That's yeah. a really interesting experience. It seems. Um, something getting my goat very quickly, just before we get to yeah. Justin. Um, have you seen this? I saw it in Taiwan, but I've also seen it in Sydney too. So it's not a Taiwanese thing. Yeah. Um, people wearing uh, piercings on their hat brims. I have not seen that. Piercings on hat brims, people. Well, that's common. If it's, it's a, not already here, that's common. Number one, it hurts less. Can we start? Tattooing but they had like three. They had like three. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, which at which point it's just, <laughs> it's just a t-shirt. Very Sweet nice. shirt. It's actually a tattoo. That's good. No, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Who defines what a tattoo is? Mm. Right? Uh, well, look, it's, it's ink, a fluid right? concept. It's ink. It's ink. Yeah. I'm getting ink. Anyway, I saw these. Um, yeah, That's pretty bad. Three piercings yeah. on this person's hat. Uh-huh. Um, I had seen it before, but I thought it was an anomaly, and I thought, okay, whatever. Well, this person is just. You thought it was a violation. Now it's. A, I don't know. This might be coming. This might be the, the latest. Um, okay. Well, you know, I'm 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 a fan of a brimmed cap. Yeah. A brimmed cap. But imagine having like dangling kind of <laughs> ornaments. Ornaments. Ornamentation. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd like that. The old uh, Prince Albert through your shorts. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is it that different to the old like Australian like uh, core cats with the dongle things to keep the mosquitoes away? 
Oh, what's the key? Well, I, you know what I'm talking about, right? I, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> you wear those all Please. the time. <laughs> you know, I'm as Aussie as it gets, <laughs> m- mate. Yeah, you walk around with your, your cork brimmed hat. Uh-huh. Um, so My maybe non-alcoholic cork lager. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that's what it is? Is it a means to kind of control oh, I for, have absolutely, for airborne pests? I'm absolutely sure it's got nothing to do with it. Were they dangly earrings? <laughs> they were, like, were they fishing lures? Were they fishermen? They, they were, certainly didn't look like fishermen. Because fishermen put lures in their hats. Interesting. And we're, we're not, no, well, they're, they're we're not fishermen. They're not. Fish, the theme of the show, huh? Ah, it comes back. Coming up next week. Yeah. All fish, uh, all fish show. Putting, putting um, fishing lures in your brim. That sounds it's like fishing. Sounds a little dicey. All right, I think I think we should do our news, Justin. What do you reckon? Can I tell you one thing? Again, Michael. Oh yeah, feel free. Um, in twenty-five words or less. You uh, no. A couple times, my getting my goat thing has been about like vocabulary. I think mm-hmm. I had like a figure of speech one a few weeks back. It's getting me again. What's really bothering me lately, this last week or two, is people saying, um, uh, "Let me put it this way." Don't yeah. put it anyway. Just say what you want to say. You okay. don't need to put it any other way than the way you want to say it. What about it. saying in other words? Well, it's like announcing a figure of speech. It's like, to use a metaphor, right. the cat, was, the the cat was like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's a simile. But you don't need to... Like, I think it's bad literary technique, right? To announce the upcoming use of a metaphor. Or, or a figure the, of speech. It takes the power away from it, right? It does. Like, it does. Surprise me. Yeah. With your, with your verbal gymnastics. <laughs> That's like a song where they say, here's the hook. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Or like a movie. Like, yeah. here's the best part. Or actually... <laughs> here's the sad bit. What's, what's that JT song? That, Take it to the bridge. There we go. That's him announcing it. It's like signposting, song. mate. I don't know that song. Yeah, bring a sexy back, dude. <laughs> Come on. That, that, that's at least our vintage. I know of... Yeah, no, I know of the song. Take I it to the chorus. I don't remember that bit. At all. all right. Um, but yeah, so that bothers me. Because um, if you use it properly, you don't need, need to announce it. Mm. And but what bothers me the most is that most of the time people do just say what they were going to say anyway, so they actually just use it totally inappropriately as well. <laughs> like, where are you going? Let's just say I'm going to go to the shops. <laughs> so you're not going to the shops? Oh no, I'm going to the shops. <laughs> I'm going to buy some milk. Or you know, what you do last night? Let's just say we went out drinking. I don't know. I don't think I've shared your your irritation with this. I feel like it's. I'm totally cool with it. You, you, don't, you don't think there's a problem saying... No, like, let, let me put it this way. I feel like... <laughs> you feel as though it's totally fine. I feel that the English language is for people to shit on and do whatever they want with. Like, I, I've got no, no qualms with it. I, I'll tell you what, my, my reverse gripe is like spelling errors and things like that. I don't give a shit. No, I don't care about that either because that's internally consistent, right? Yeah. That's about pronunciation and whatever. But when you're deliberately announcing something and then you don't even do what you're going to announce, yeah. uh, that's just breaking structure. That's frustrating. Come on. I'll give it to you. Come on. That's a, but I'm giving you a 5 out of 10 for that gripe. Expect better next week. Oh, look, it's not great. It's like, it's a pretty, it's a low-lying gripe, but it's been kind of bubbling with me for a couple of years now, and lately it's just kind of boiled to the surface. All right. All right. Let's do some news, Justin. Let's talk, let's, let's talk science. That's what let's this, talk science. This, let's get to the real... Allegedly, that's what this podcast is about. Shall we do it? Yeah. You ready for this? I've got, I've got a couple of... Uh, well, they're not crackers, but they're, they're all right. They're all right. Has it been a slow month for science? Is December a slow month? Maybe it is. Here we go. News just in. Roots of red hair. Oh, by the way, I'm starting to do like my own like captions to them. You know what I mean? What do you mean? Headlines like, 
Anyway, you'll see what I mean. Okay. Roots of red hair. Yeah. Uh, originally linked to just one recessive gene, scientists have now discovered eight additional genes linked to red hair. Interesting. I thought you were going to say, with the reference to the roots of red hair, that there are no real red-haired people. They're all died. <laughs> the roots suggest <laughs> that they're all brunettes and they all dye their hair, every single one of them. It's impossible to have real red hair in nature. Uh, well, perhaps that's some uh, future studies that might be suggested in that little section at the end of the paper where they're like, we're going to suggest some future studies. <laughs> yeah. We more, also don't more believe... More research is required in the area yeah. of is red hair real? The veracity of red hair. Yeah, so basically previous studies show that redheads needed a copy of the MC1R gene mm-hmm. from both their mum and their dad because sure. it's recessive. You kind of know how recessive genes work, right? I know. Kind of yeah. like you, you, both your parents need to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, if only one of your parents needs to have them, you could be a carrier. Sorry, if only one of your parents has the gene, um, then you could be a carrier. Mm-hmm. You'll never actually ex- express that gene. Yeah. Um, but some people with two MC1R genes mm-hmm. um, are not redheads. So there's other genes at play that oh. modify that one MC1R, okay. um, the gene, right? So uh, these genes control when it's switched on or off. Well, I hope that we can learn to switch it on more because I love red hair. I, I think it's too. great. Red hair is incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it is funny, like th- this, in terms of solving the world's problems... We'll get Brad in to see what he thinks about the roots of red hair and how much... <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's write all these down yeah. and ask him if these were uh, considered. One of the uh, phrases at the end of this paper, which... Uh, it was a great paper by Michael D. Morgan et al. from the University Who's of Edinburgh. Who's You cannot use that joke on this show, dude. Are you seriously going to do that for me? Yeah, I did it. Um, it says, once again, collaborative research is providing answers to life's important questions. Yeah. So, when you want to ask Brad about whether they consider this, curing or giving everyone red hair? Which direction? <laughs> what, like, what were they going to do with this science? I feel curing is a little bit laden with judgment, don't you think? <laughs> well, I think so. <laughs> After saying how much you so, love red hair, we're going to try to cure it though at the end of the do day. You want, so do you want to rid the world of red hair or just like create a, a pure red hair? Like basically make a big Scotland. Hmm? What other countries have red hair besides Scotland? I think, I think Israel has a lot of red hair. Really? Yeah. I know many redheads from Israel. Is it in their malt? It could be. <laughs> it could be. That's, not, that's more research for the, for the directions. The final thing to note about this, uh, this paper, it's, it uses what's called the UK, it's called the UK Biobank, which have you heard of the UK Biobank? No. It's pretty cool. There's 500,000 participants um, aged 40 to 69, and they've mm-hmm. had a lot of stuff collected from them, uh, blood, saliva, urine, uh, they're like measures and health history and genotyping and stuff. Yeah. And in fact, 100,000 of them have worn 24-hour activity monitors. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, all bona fide um, researchers can apply via application to get used to this data. And that's what data was used in this piece of research. That's cool. And that's really cool. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure if there's... I mean, the, the, the stuff that the Sachs Institute do or the 45 and up study in Australia, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot A lot of people obviously give in their information. Sure. And, um, you can get a lot of disease-based stuff, but this seems to be quite wide-ranging in the amount of information there. Which, well, this is big, is pretty bi- cool. Big biodata, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think we need to encourage people to. I know we've had a huge issue even just getting people to have their like records online. Yeah, with the e-health records, e-health stuff, record thing. It's been just a huge issue just to get this stuff like accessible by doctors online. Um, are we pro e-health on this? Totally. Yeah, we're definitely I'm, pro. I'm right? Definitely pro e-health. Yeah. yeah. Sign up. Get your shit out there. Yeah. 
Who cares? It, it's just good Who for cares you. Who if you like... We're not even using it for research. Yeah. And I think we should be. I think that's part of Medicare. I think that should be one of the like requirements for enrollment is that you should have like de-identified mm. um, all that data. Any gene mapping data that's ever done, people who've had it done, I think we should be collecting it all. Mm. And it should be all available to researchers. For for government-funded research especially, right? Mm. Yeah. Government-funded healthcare, government-funded research. Pool your resources, man. Yeah. I went to a GP a few days ago and yeah. I was like, wouldn't it be great if he had everything that's ever happened to me at his fingertips? Mm. So I didn't have to be like, oh, yeah. And then I got herpes. And then... No, yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. So but that's yeah, what that, happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, totally. Because people move all the time, right? And it's a hassle to go to, to a new GP and to further complicate that visit by having to kind of track down your old information. Mm. When he could just, he could just be there. And just, it's just not that big a deal to change countries or cities or whatever else. Testify. All right. Next... Well, c- countries is hard. Next uh, piece of research. No pain, no gain. Out of the Harvard Medical School, research from Harvard indicates different neural pathways are involved in the immediate reflexive pain Mm -hmm. and more long-term sustained pain associated with tissue damage. Yeah, I read this. This is a few weeks old now, isn't it? It it is. You you got me. I'm pulling one out from a few weeks ago. Don't think I'm not reading what's going on. I'm impressed that you run it. In the sciences. So I'll 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 give you my little points and I'll get you to talk about it. Because I know you're in the pain game. I am. Um, Ponai. Ponai. Ponai, Um, Ponas. The, implica- the implications of this research is that um, most other research for pain medication mm-hmm. to assess whether it's working or not is measured against the reduction in the initial sort of reflexive response you get from various pain sources. Stimuli. Stimuli. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it's, it, they're saying it's being measured against the wrong, wrong outcome because if there is indeed two pain responses, it's that... Um, uh, the sustained pain that you want to reduce from the tissue damage that's being caused, right? Mm-hmm. And they also suggest that there's two different evolutionary processes involved in those two pain responses. Ah, now we're talking. Yeah, which I thought okay. was, was really tickling my uh, my privates. Um, Excuse so me? It's just, it's just an expression. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's, uh, yeah. um, so, for example, if you put your hand on a hot plate, that's yeah. the sharp, immediate pain that's obviously preventing... Preventing injury, right? Yeah. It's your you, brain, with your withdrawal reflex and things. Your yeah. brain telling you, if I keep my hand on there, I will no longer have a hand after a certain amount of yeah. time, right? So clearly yeah. it evolved, that pain response evolved for us to stay safe from immediate mm-hmm. dangers, hot, hot things, cold things, whatever, right? Uh, now, torn ligaments, uh, that's the sort of dull long-term pain. It, it's essentially preventing you from using that leg while yeah. it's being healed, right? Yeah. So the surrounding... So if, if you have a torn ligament, you can tell me more about this, Mr. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Ligament Man. But if you have a torn ligament in your leg somewhere, say, sure. um, ideally, you don't want to use the rest of that leg either because it's no longer being helped out by that ligament, right? That ligament's damaged. Mm-hmm. And so if you're using other parts around it, it's more likely that you might damage... I'm thinking from an evolutionary perspective, like why the pain would have evolved, right? Yeah. If I'm if I have no qualms using a damaged arm or a damaged limb, yeah, I'm more likely to further damage it because it's currently in. Yeah. A, okay. So is that right? Y- yeah. I mean, it depends on. It really depends on the kind of injury it is, actually. So there's. It's kind of paradoxical. Yeah. Some injuries clearly really bad to walk on, right? Like if you break your leg. You're going to have a hard time walking on that. It's going to be really painful and for good reason. If you walk on a broken leg, it's just not going to heal. So yeah. you need to have a bit of pain there. Tendon, well, tendons and ligaments, which are really kind of the same. So 
tendons, uh, tendons connect muscle to bone, mm-hmm. and ligaments connect bone to bone. So it's like the same kind of tissue. We know now, over the last couple of decades of research, that they actually do better if you move them while they're healing. Now, obviously, if it's totally torn, um, like ripped right off something, well, if it's kind of moved quite far away from where it started, it's not going to heal very well at all, whether you move it or not, don't move it. Right. If it's only partially torn um, or partially injured, we actually know that moving it to some extent actually encourages it to heal better, faster, and stronger. Well, that's physiotherapy in one sentence, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so I guess so that, that movement kind of... is life. So, and even some fractures are important to move a little bit. Well, that, that flies in the face of my, my initial suggestion as it to the second evolutionary process. So, obviously, I've got that ass about. Yeah. But, well, maybe why then would, for example, if I, you know, torn, torn something, why do I experience such pain when I'm over the course of weeks afterwards, for example? Like, what, what kind of, what purpose does that pain serve me? On an evolutionary level, right? Well, I guess one thing is it should slow you down, but it shouldn't stop you necessarily. So if you do hurt yourself, if you have ligamentous injury or tendon injury or whatever else, we don't recommend people go right back to what they were doing before. Yeah, whether we fixed it or we just left it, you need to sort of slow down at least for a little bit. Well, that's why it's a dull. I guess it's a dull pain, yeah. right? You're yeah. Not so even... it's a combination of, of like sort of short-term immobilization yeah. and and then active range of motion. But for hand stuff, a lot of times we do hand surgery. We get people moving right away. Mm. We want you moving, like, we'll get people move their hand, like, day one after, have, after having hand surgery because the hand gets so stiff. Joints get really, really stiff if you don't use them. So in addition to just actually helping out the thing you repaired, the tendon or the bone or whatever else, you actually just want to keep moving things in general. Immobilizing things is often not a great thing to do. Yeah. So which is why we operate on things, so we can kind of get you moving as much of yourself as possible. So, yeah, it is a bit paradoxical, the idea that if something hurts... It feels like you shouldn't move it, but sometimes you should, which is why also, you know, people back pain, people get this kind of this response. They're like, oh, it hurts. I'm just going to lay my back for a week. Bad idea. Bad idea. You got to yeah. keep moving. You got to keep moving. It's Tell the most what, important well, thing. Here we go. This is my weekly, um, I don't know, um, Tai Chi anecdote. Yeah. Uh, but, you the know, tai Chi I, corner. I, had issue, tai Chi corner. I had issues with my um, back for a while. Yeah. And then ever since I started doing regular Tai Chi, it's been great. Mm. So Moving. few issues. So few issues. And Movement I, is life. Yep. In fact, one of the things about joints in particular is that they need to be moving um, to be healthy. Not necessarily like, you don't have to be like a super athlete, but you've got to keep on moving. Because when you move, it pumps the fluid in and out of your cartilage. And that's the only way your cartilage can sort of quote unquote breathe, mm. get rid of toxins or kind of, you know, accumulation of bad stuff and pump in good nutrients to kind of keep it alive. If you don't move, you can't pump it in and out because it can't pump itself. It's like lungs. You gotta actually got to squeeze the pressure of walking and moving, squeeze the fluid through. If you don't do that, it's just going to degrade and fall apart. And you actually get higher chance of having arthritis if you're someone who is reasonably sedentary than someone who has just kind of keeps on moving. So, yeah. No move, no improve. That's what they say. All right, next, fi- final piece of research. Yeah. Put your head in a spinach. That's, I, I, can, I can probably do better is, than that. Is that a song? No, I just... I, I can improve on my captions. Scientists use spinach to prove cold-pressed juices are bullshit and, yes. mi- and microwaves are awesome. You're going to love this. This is great. Th- this, me. this piece of research, on, incidentally, proves two major points that we were trying to make. Well, you know what? Ago. I'm so on board with this. I'm going to tune out for the next five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and you can just talk because I'm, I'm all in. So, all right. Uh, lutein which is an antioxidant abundant in dark leafy 
vegetables. Mm -hmm. uh, it's L-U-T-E-I-N? Correct. Yeah. It's been associated with several health-promoting effects, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we're trying to figure out how to get the most out of most lutein, available lutein from spinach into the human body. Mm -hmm. What's the best way of eating spinach, right? Yeah. Um, so I've always wondered. Have you? Yeah, I was thinking um, rectal administration. <laughs> well, I it could be. They, I'm not sure they had yeah. that as one of the uh, experiments, but um, certainly they uh, they were trialing heating spinach versus eating it raw. Yeah. Um, but let me go through this. There's some interesting findings. So heating spinach has been thought to reduce the available lutein if you heat it up, mm -hmm. and indeed boiling or frying spinach was shown was shown to reduce the available lutein for human absorption, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're boiling it, uh, if you're frying it, it's reducing the amount of but goodness. But probably in it. for different reasons, right? If you're boiling it, you're probably losing a lot of it to the water. Yes. I assume. Whereas yep. frying it, you're not really losing it, but for some reason you're decreasing the availability of it, right? So are we thinking there's two different processes or is it just the heat alone? Just Good question. The sheer My fat. bullet point ends there, so uh, mm, I okay. can't answer that question. Um, but You didn't think I'd be so engaged with this topic. Asking such relevant, <laughs> poignant questions. To be fair, you did say you were just going to spend the next five minutes <laughs> listening. Um, no, but it's true. Yeah. See this? Isn't it frustrating when someone zigs then zags? <laughs> that was quite a zag. <laughs> right? Um, Let me put it this way. <laughs> I'm going to keep listening to you. Right. The, the, the first like interesting finding as far as the Jeremy Zion podcast goes is that liquefying spinach increases the available lutein. So uh -huh. eating it in a smoothie yeah. increases the available lutein for human absorption, sure. right? So the idea that the spinning blades of a smoothie machine or something yeah. is heating up, the, heating up the spinach such that the... It's ruining something. It's or, ruining, yeah. it's removing the nutrients yeah. is bullshit. And uh -huh. I think this was our, our gripe against uh, cold-pressed juices totally. some weeks ago, right? Yeah. So Not to say the cold press isn't delicious. Oh, it's just that's juice. That's not in question. <laughs> yeah. It's just juice. But the health benefits that is claimed by the cold press, by um, big cold. Big, <laughs> big press? Sure. What is your big pressure? What is your favorite juice in Sydney right now? Carrot. In Sydney right now? Yeah. What where do you, well, where do you go? You want a juice? If you, if your be, favorite juice depend on the city and time? Well, no. Well, I mean, look, within reason, you're in Sydney. You can go. You want a juice, and right. traveling within Sydney is no option. Carrot, where are you going? carrot answers every one of those questions. Carrot yeah. juice, easy. I had carrot again like, like two or three days ago. I don't. Did I call you? Did I speak to you when I just had it? I'd I was thinking to call. about. I was thinking about. I was drinking the carrot juice at um, the food court in Chinatown, uh. right? And I was like, God damn. Carrot is the king juice, right? Yeah. Totally. Sweet. Healthy. And I feel as though we vegetable. stumbled across carrot juice late in the juice game. Like, not you and I, but like the juices of the world. Like, I think, I feel as though, I wonder when we first started drinking carrot juice. Mm. When does that go back to? Because do you wonder if like, it was like 10 years ago, like, or even 20 years ago, when someone first started like properly juicing carrots, they were like, oh my God, how have we survived so long without something as simple as carrot juice? This why, is, why is orange king? Why is orange juice king? Cheap. It's cheap. Oh, is it? But carrots are cheaper. Are they? Carrots, you get a whole bag. You get a whole bag for a buck. $1.50. That is pretty cheap. Anyway. It's, it's king juice. It's so good for... Although, as much as I appreciate this this tangent, yeah. I still want to keep on the topic of spinach here. We can, yeah, right. So it, it, we, we have not spinach juice, though. <laughs> spinach juice. No. Yeah. You're getting a lot of nutrients, obviously, but... No, no. Carrots. Um, the second interesting finding from this paper... Yeah. What do you think happened when they cooked spinach and then 
reheated it in a microwave. Wait. Pretend so they, like I'm not saying it like, uh, obviously, the, well. Okay. Guess. They cooked it first. Yep. Cooled it down. Yep. And then reheated it in the microwave. Correct. Um... Interesting. Um, I'm going to guess, well, compared to what? Compared to its original state? No, it's important. Like, with reference to well, what happened, with reference the to interesting it post-being finding, cooked, pre-being cooked. Look, let me just tell you the interesting okay. finding, right? So, obviously, when they cooked it, it reduced the available lutein, right? Yeah. When, they, when you put it in a microwave... It came back. It came back. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It actually put back, well, not all of it, but it put back some of the available lutein for human absorption. Wait, so are you saying... The microwaves, instead of being magically dangerous, are actually just magically beneficial. Like there's a intangible magic that happens where it just makes things hotter and better for you. Uh, and magic is one of the uh, you know elements of science. Elements of one, science. one of the axioms, <laughs> one, of, one of the pillars of science. Magic, yeah. right? Evidence, right. observation, magic. <laughs> yeah. Big M on the periodic table, right? Yeah. There is no M. You gotta ask why that is. Hmm. MG MN. Yeah. What What would the element of magic be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be M. MJ. Hmm. I've always liked magic with a J. That's. I spelling. feel like I feel like a uh, an interrobang would be involved in the action. Dude, how good is the interrobang? The M interrobang. Yeah. That is news, Justin, for okay. this December the thirtieth. Yeah. Two thousand and eighteen. Eighteen. The year in review. The top three stories of the year. So we'll have a quick little uh, musical interlude and then we're going to get on to uh, an interview. Yeah. With Bradley Wong. Bradley Stephen Wong. From the Copenhagen, Copenhagen Consensus. Is that what it's called? That's right, yeah. 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 Is that me? That's you. Okay. Welcome back to RBJ. Jeremy's. Welcome back to Jeremy's Iron. This is uh, a podcast about science, reason, all that shit. Uh, we have an interview happening in this particular First part. First interview. First interview ever. Um, we announced it at the top of the show, but Justin B, tell us who we're interviewing. We are interviewing Bradley Wong, middle name. Shunfat. Thank you. Bradley works for the Copenhagen Consensus. Is that right, Bradley? Shunfat. Sorry, am I doing this right? <laughs> yeah. You've already wait, wait, you've already ruined the this, interview. This, this, this thing makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> just pretend, just pretend it's naked. <laughs> you pretend that the um, that the mic foam is not on. <laughs> if that helps, <laughs> or pretend that our one listener isn't wearing clothes. <laughs> <laughs> just picture it. Picture some dude. Chris <laughs> picture Chris in the nude. Yeah, in a Brooklyn apartment. <laughs> yeah, that makes you. Calmer? 
Is that a more uh, a more familiar situation for you to yes. be talking? Yes. So I, I like how, to, just to give you a bit of context, before this interview, I was telling yeah. Justin, I was like, you're going to treat this like a real interview, right? Yeah. So so you're going to make sure you, you, you know, be real pro- professional right off yeah. the bat. And I'm glad I'm having a hard time stepping right well, into it. Uh, the thing is, we've known Brad for a long time, right? Yeah, we yeah. were trying to hide that fact in the intro of the show. So we, but <laughs> we, we were. We're, we're fortunate enough to be guys who are interested in reason and evidence, right? That's kind of why we do this. Yes. And who do we know that's more topical, more interested in reason, evidence, than our friend, Bjorn Lomberg? I was going to say Byron. And by proxy, our friend Bradley Wong. Yep. Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. Feels good to be here. Yeah. So I think this whole thing started when I listened to that interview Mm. with Old Mate. Yep. Last week, which I've heard interviews before. I thought this is a really interesting topic. A great company, a great sort of, a great... Yeah, a great organization with a great reason to be around. Uh, but I had so many questions, not controversial questions, just like really in the weeds, just detail about the process. And I was like, man, if only I could be a fly on the wall or like in that studio asking questions or if there's like a way to follow up this interview. And I was like, my mate Bradley Wong's coming to town next week. He works for the Copenhagen Consensus. I can ask him. And he's on, you're on the ground floor, right? So I can yeah. like, you're the best person to be talking to about some of these very nitty gritty specifics about how you guys get from... Yeah. Point Q question to A answer. Sure. Q to A. So should I just talk a bit about like what give, the give center does? And, on the, yeah. Yeah. So basically, um, our mission is to advise governments, philanthropists, uh, people with money who want to do good in the world, like how to use that money most effectively. Mm. Um, and it's a simple concept, right? And you would think that it sort of makes sense almost self-evidently. There are all of these countries, they aren't particularly wealthy. Even the most wealthy foundation, like the Gates Foundation, has a limited amount of money. And the problems that exist in the world, um, no matter how much money you have, can't all be solved. So therefore, let's go out there, let's look at the evidence. There's a lot of studies, there's a lot of data, um, there's a lot of thinking that's already been done around you know, which types of things have the greatest impact for the dollars that you have, for mm. the rupees that you have, for whatever you know, currency that you have, for the time that you have, the attention that you have. Mm. So, international currency unit. International currency. Yes, ICUs. Yes, exactly. And, and so you know, instead of just making decisions based on you know, what feels good, um, what has the most sort of salient... Um, you know, current topical like attention, uh, you know, what perhaps will garner the most votes or, you know, the, the people in charge, you know, believe will do the best. Let's, let's go out there, look at the evidence um, and use the limited resources that we have to the greatest effect. Um, and, and anyway, it sounds so, you know, efficiency, it sounds so like staid and a little bit boring when I kind of just say it like that. Mm. But you know, these are real, they're, they're real people's lives on the line here. Yeah. You know, there, are, there are interventions which will be not just like two or three times better than the typical intervention, but like 200 or 300 times better or a thousand times better than the typical intervention. So you're talking about instead of saving one person's life, you can save a thousand people's lives. Yeah. And that's like, I think, a extremely And a lot of it's really counterintuitive. Well, I think it's not, it's not that it's counterintuitive. It's more that unless you sit down with the evidence and look at all the evidence and do all of the studies and do the analysis properly, um, which 
things are going to deliver greater bang for buck mm. aren't self-evident. And that's the thing though, right? Is it one of your sort of a double-edged sword? One of your prime techniques for kind of getting these answers is to use the metric of dollars, right? You need some way to equalize mm. all these kind of disparate ideas, intentions, yes, possible projects, right? Yes. And so you have to, they all have to be reduced down to sort of a common denominator, which is going to be currency, yes. dollars, dollars, finances. Um, which some people, I guess, would criticize that as saying that the problem with that is that it does tend to reduce things and or maybe even eliminate things which can't be easily priced mm-hmm. as well, I'd mm-hmm. imagine. Yep. So, the, yeah, the, that's a good point. And the, and the, the method that we use to uh, standardize and compare all of the, t- the different things that you can do in a developing country. So, like, you, know, you can do education. Uh, you can... Um, help with the environment you can try and reduce corruption you can improve nutrition all of these things mm. that they lead to very different types of outcomes and so how do you compare um let's say this intervention can save a hectare of forest and another intervention can prevent um undernutrition in five kids mm. like which one is better that's a good example how would you can you <clears throat> Is there a brief way you can run down how you can reduce those to the same denominator? Yep. Yeah, there is. And um, cost-benefit analysis is a its a really sort of tried-and-true method. It's Of course, it's like any process. It's not without its mm. imperfections and flaws and assumptions embedded in it. But the you know what it comes down to is um, turning or what economists like to call monetizing all of these outcomes... Um, into a common currency like um, you know, like dollars or rupees. Now, for lots of things that you buy in the market, those th- that conversion is straightforward. This vaccine costs five dollars, therefore it's yeah. worth five dollars in the cost-benefit calculation. The other stuff that is not traded in markets, much more complicated. But thankfully, people have been studying this and thinking about this for a long time. Um, and the basic principle is that you value it at the amount that people are willing to pay for it themselves, willing to trade their own money for mm-hmm. uh, in, um, you know, in their sort of day-to-day um, you know, comings and goings within the economy. So, for example, there are certain jobs which are more risky. There's a higher chance of death, and people usually require to be compensated higher for those jobs, right? Sure, danger so, pay. Yeah, danger pay. So, you know... Obviously, there's a lot of econometrics involved. You've got a, um, a, you know, control for gender and um, education and all, all sorts of other things. But essentially, with this, you can come to a point where you go, well, this, this job has a 1 in 10,000 more um, likelihood of death and it gets, you get paid an extra $5,000 for it. And therefore, um, you, from that, you can back out um, the value of uh, having a policy that reduces mortality risk. Right. Um, and this this can get a little bit controversial. Yeah, mm. This can get a little bit controversial, but we do it all the time. Like, for example, in any country, you have speed limits, right? There's a speed limit for the street outside, sure. which is 40 kilometers. Um, highways is 110 kilometers in Australia. Uh, but we kind of accept the idea that there should be speed limits, right? Yeah. But it is a total cost on the economy and your time. Right? If you can travel. 150 kilometers down the highway, you can get to place, places faster. But we accept, yeah, we can accept 110. So, what we're inherently trading off there is time, which has a value, against safety. Safety, and and that just that's a completely uncontroversial idea. Yeah. And again, this i this idea that we trade off 
Um, we found an equivalence between what yeah. seemed to be two fairly disparate concepts, yeah. but we've factored them both into the same equation. Yes, exactly. Right? And, and we, we do solve for x with that. Yes, exactly. And uh, I won't go into more, uh, too, too many more examples, but you can do this for lots of things. Uh, and you can do it by looking at people's behavior. Mm-hmm. And you can also do it by asking people what they would value. So, the, so the, that's called, oh, actually, I won't get into the jargon, but that's, that's called a um, stated preference study. So what people state they would be willing to pay for certain outcomes. There needs to be very clear and uh, robust methods so that you don't get funny um, answers or nonsensical answers from that type of analysis. But that whole field of stated preference analysis is really, really well-developed, robust, and it has, has been used in um, lots of very prominent examples. For example, um, the fine that the U.S. government gave to British Petroleum when they had the Gulf of Mexico spill was based on a state of preference study conducted by economists. Right. So, right. so it actually, we, we use this all the time and we use it in so many different ways. Um, and I'm kind of heading off a, one criticism of cost-benefit analysis, yeah. which is that you know, everything ends up being you know, reduced down to money. Um, but I, I don't think the right way to think about it is money. It's basically what you would be willing to trade off sure. as an individual for these benefits that you see. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I chime in here with a bit of a technical question, which you can feel free to shove it back in my face if it's too technical, but I think it's quite interesting, I think. Um, for, for me, it seems like there's a lot of your work deals with um, avoiding or, or trying to value the potential of um, low frequency or low probability but high harm events so how do you deal with something kind of like okay your example of traveling at 150 kilometers an hour we like the chance of you crashing and dying at that speed is still very very low right Mm -hmm. but the impact would be huge so are there issues to do with low like these really low frequency events or again if it's too technical feel free to just run over that but i don't know to me that seems like an issue that would be hard to kind of navigate around yeah yeah, that's a good point and and people in general aren't very good at assessing very small um, risks, like risks with low probability. Uh, I, don't know the, um, I don't know the literature that well enough to know how they deal with it, but I'm, I'm going to guess that, for example, a 1 in 100 um, chance of dying, you're going to pay much more than 10 times a 1 in 1,000 risk of dying because you have a, um, you know, a, 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 you know, an increasing... Um, aversion to, to loss. Yeah. Uh, so, and this yeah. is more than just saying like factoring in the earning potential of an individual when they die, what's lost to the state versus the efficiencies lost from time from slower traffic, right? If you reduce it down to just simple money that way and not take preferences into account, you'd mm. probably undervalue understate. a life. Definitely. Yes, right? you definitely understate So by life. having preferences, you actually do sort of Trying to get closer to some sort of an ethical balance you, with it, right? You're trying to you, you definitely capture more of the intangibles, right? Yeah. So someone's what someone um, a, a one approach that people have used in the past that is now generally discredited is that um, a value of a of a life is um, based on what they would earn. Yeah, but, so that's but, what I was saying, yeah. which was too simplistic, and again undervalues yeah. a life relative to what we would. Yes. Preference. Yes. There's all sorts of other you know, yeah. inherent pain and suffering and, yeah. and you know, uh, some elements that are like shame, dignity, all of those things that, that come along with these, um, these problems. Anyway, I think we've, you know, we've, yeah. we're getting a lot into the, the weeds of the Yeah, the that's very specific. But yeah. that, that was important yeah. because I think some of the other questions I have yeah. do lean heavily into 
how the system works in terms yes. of how you because there are so many different outcomes that we're looking at right and i think it's probably one of the biggest questions people would have is how do you actually reduce those into something that is hmm. a formula that you can run to yep. try and get some equivalency between them so getting into a bit of the sort of the structure of the organization sure um in the interviews i've heard we hear about fairly intangibly about this elite team of economists that kind of run these numbers and these models. How many people are actually involved in the company? So the organization is quite small. It's a very lean organization. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really great business model from, I, I used to be a consultant and I sort of saw a lot of business models and I think that the Copenhagen consensus has a really good one. Um, basically, there's, it, it fluctuates depending on how many projects we have, but let's say roughly 10 to 15 um, employees, which is which it's is crazy small. That's it's a, it's a uh, people would organization. I imagine people might have even imagined that when you say a small organization, they might have thought in the hundreds for kind of what we hear you guys doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that it, is like that's more than lean. That's like it's incredible, tiny. It's minuscule. So so the way that the way that we operate and that makes things work really well is that we uh, commission leading economists from the, around the world who might be you know, a professor at a university or they might be an independent consultant or they work for another think tank. Sure. And we give them some, um, you know, obviously we pay them uh, for just to produce a report. And we do that with lots of other economists. So let's say we've worked, we're working in a given country. So we've worked in Bangladesh and Haiti and two states of India recently. We'll go into, say, Rajasthan. Um, I'll talk about Rajasthan because we've just done this. And um, we'll look at all of the different issues and the big policies that are on the table for that particular state that, that ends up with a really massive list usually it's like a thousand more like two or three four thousand policies and of course we can't do cost benefit analysis on all of those policies so we then get another group of people uh, who we call an advisory council to whittle that down to roughly 70 to 100 and then again we then go out with that 70 to 100 and approach economists to do cost-benefit analysis on these 100 policies. Sure. Invariably, some of them drop off because there's no data or they're just conceptually too difficult or you know, people don't deliver on time. All of these, the vagaries of project management sure. come into play. And then what we end up with at the end is a giant menu of what we call benefit-cost ratios, like benefit divided by cost, um, the return on investment, if you will, uh, for all of these policies. And that's a huge menu. And some of them return very uh, large amounts for the dollar, like more than 100. Some of them return average, like four or five. And some of them return less than one. So they're Mm. not good uses of money. We then take that list and run it through an eminent panel, which usually consists of some Nobel laureate economists and really prominent economists from the country that we're working in. So there's like an international flavor, there's a local flavor, yeah. and then they take that list and prioritizing, and, and that usually ends up with, I don't know, we'll take the top 10 or the yeah. top five, whatever makes sense, and approach governments and the leaders of that state and say, we've got this huge process, we've got hundreds and hundreds of pages of peer-reviewed literature from some of the world's top economists, it's gone through this group of people, and then this even smarter group of people, the eminent panel, and this is the result. Maybe you should be doing some of these things. And so for the Rajasthan project, is that done? No. It is, it is done. And so how long did that take from, from, from consultation to completion? So a typical project takes somewhere between one and a half to two years. Okay. But a lot of the research, which is 
my um, role in the organization gets truncated to about a year. Okay. So I have to manage <laughs> with, a, with a lot of um, joy, frustration, and or every emotion in between uh, about 20 to 30 teams of economists over the period of a year okay. to, to try and get all of this done. Yeah. So it's an organizational supernova. It's yeah. It yeah. it it can be very difficult. And academics, um, God bless them. They work at the you know they work at a different pace. Yeah. Uh, and and you know for very good reason. They they want to be. There's a precision in academia yeah. that requires time. Um, and we try and basically. The other part of the Copenhagen Consensus Center is mostly um, you know, working with media. So you know media works on daily time cycles. Yeah. And academia works on yearly time cycles and we're trying to marry the two together which means you all yeah. often don't have very sexy updates <laughs> like uh, every month or something right like you would no it's a slow burn it's a it's a slow burn but when we do have results uh, they're really interesting and sure and the things that we communicate i think it's quite intuitive to say this thing does 20 dollars back in the dollar of social good and yeah. this thing only does five and then it's up to the government to do what they want with that information yes exactly and now of the 10 to 15 because formal employees of the organization, yeah. would it be mainly economists? No, not at all. Uh, it's mostly I'm I'm one of only three economists okay. in the organization. The rest are project managers. Um, there's a lot of liaison with the government. So we have I don't know people who work. I don't know what their titles are, um, but basically they make they make and form relationships. Right. Uh, there's also media people, and that's the gist of it. Okay. Um, everything else, as I said, quite a lean organization. So a lot of back office stuff gets gets outsourced. Sure. Um, which and that's the key, right? To outsource, to get bigger for a big project, and then contract again the end of a project, right? Yes, essentially. Yeah. It gives us flexibility and, and yeah, it, it works, I think. Yeah. Now, the climate change sort of topic is the one that's probably garnered the most attention mm-hmm. for the organization over the last couple of years. Yep. Uh, I don't think we need to go down that route much other than to say that I think the gist of it is that you guys found that it's not a priority from a cost benefit standpoint. Yeah. This relative to other much more pressing issues. Not to say it's not important, I think is the what's being said, but certainly not something that um can be tackled effectively with the funds we have relative to other more pressing issues of human welfare and I think that's the right way to put it. It's not that it's not a problem or that it's the problem itself or the size of the problem itself isn't an issue. It Mm. certainly is. It certainly um, could be a very big problem, particularly if there's, you know, if the tail ends up being, um, you know, the the tail risk is large. Yeah. It's more about, and what our organization focuses on are the solutions to the problems. Yeah. And the solutions available to fight climate change aren't great aren't great or efficient but, yeah relative to other yeah. uses well i think lombard put it really well when i heard him speak a few weeks ago and he said that there isn't really much point saving the earth or focusing on saving the earth or coming up with solutions for saving the earth if we can't save the people who will be inhabiting that earth yeah. down the track right so you have to sort of sort of take care of number one first despite what what's been done or what needs to be undone what I found interesting before I joined... I think I'm paraphrasing that. Before I joined the organization, I um, found climate... I thought climate change was the most important um, issue that the world should be focusing on. Um, I had a perspective that was a very much a first world perspective, mm. I would say. Um, and the more and more I work in developing countries, the more I've come to appreciate that the climate change debate is incredibly... Well, there's a lot more nuance there than I had appreciated. Um, and I just assumed that 
from from a from a person that has lived most of his life in a country where uh, there's I have running water, I yeah. have electricity almost whenever I want it. Um, I'm probably going to live to eighty or ninety. Uh, my children aren't going to die in you know before their first birthday. Yeah, all of these things that I just take for granted. Therefore, I can focus on the high level um, things like my enjoyment of the environment. Yeah, those things are not given in developing countries, and. I think what was really telling was that about four or five years ago, the um, the UN, right? So not some two-bit like you know sort of international mom pop shop. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, the UN went out and, and and surveyed millions of people in the developing world about their preferences. This was in um, lead up to the um, post 2015 development agenda, which was to set new goals for um, the period 2015 to 2030, and they out of a list of about 15 or 16 priorities, like better education, jobs, climate change, governance, etc., climate change came last. So In of, the West? No, no, in, in, the, in developing countries. In, oh, in developing countries, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. In, in, the, yeah. in the poorest countries, right? Yeah, well, that makes it right. Yeah. So, so I think that, that that gives us some pause for thought, right? There's, uh, there's a lot of problems in these countries, and by the own admission put climate change down the bottom mm. and i think that totally makes sense if you're if you're worried about where your next meal is coming from you're not worried about the impacts of yeah. something that is going to have the greatest effect in 2070 mm. now that's of course not to say that climate change isn't impacting people now it certainly is yeah but it's about I, solutions it, it, the relative sense of it yeah. i think is that um there are other problems which are more solvable insofar as they require less resources yeah i think it makes and, perfect sense and, yeah no when you guys are running your models and sort of culling all these different options, have you come up with any other major surprises, any other sort of any other agendas that were either paradoxically much more efficient than you expected or significantly less? I think let's talk about the good news because I, I like to talk about that yeah. uh, more. So when we first started this, and I, I, I wasn't around when, um, I wasn't at the organization when it first started in the it's early good. 2000s. Yeah. So 2004 is roughly when it um, commenced. Um, nutrition was not considered a particularly effective intervention. It mm-hmm. wasn't considered a particularly ineffective intervention. It was just mixed in there with all the other things that you could do in developing countries. Yeah. You could, you know, with you know, environment, health, water and sanitation, education. Now, what we've, I think a big part of, of our success story is the impact we've had in changing people's minds about the efficiency of nutrition interventions. And the logic behind this is quite simple. In a lot of developing countries, kids, um, both in utero and outside in the first two years of life, they do not get sufficient macro and micronutrients to um, reach their full um, cognitive potential, cognitive and muscular potential, yeah. and this and, and this is called stunting, essentially, mm. when you're two standard deviations lower than some reference height, and this has extremely um, long life term, uh, lifelong consequences. It makes you, um, first of all, less productive as a person, um, it, yeah, less cognitive ability, more problems in terms of your health in the future mm-hmm. like, in, in all likelihood um, though the studies around that aren't particularly um, you know there's some, there's some yeah, uncertainty around that uh, so so there's lots of problems with the, the you know with, with stunting yeah and the solution is just relatively eat. inexpensive and 
quite, I wouldn't say it's straightforward to implement, but the costs are not very high. Yeah. It's making sure that um, mothers are educated properly about uh, what to feed their children once they, um, once they get off breast milk. Uh, it's about giving mothers proper food. Uh, it's about um, giving children some you know, micronutrients like zinc and other things. And you know, these things cost maybe a few hundred bucks per child over the course of three years mm. and lead to lifelong um, improvements, improvements. Uh, and big improvements as well. The, the one study that we have on this is a famous study from Guatemala where in the 70s uh, they did a randomized controlled trial where they gave some, some children some protein powder and the other ones um, basically sugar water. Yeah. And they followed them. Um, they, they did that. And then they followed them for 40 years. And what they found was that the children that, um, had, been given the, um, that had been given the protein powder, they were... I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were much less likely to be stunted. And the key number that comes up is that they had um, 66% more um, consumption. Like uh, that's a, Consumption is an economics term. But basically, they, they, I guess, what's a better way to think about it? They used 66% more valuable things, right? right? Like, so they had, a um, big part of that is that they probably had more income as yeah. well. Uh, so, you know, that's a massive, that's a massive improvement. And, and, the Copenhagen Consensus Center has been a big force behind um, pushing nutrition as an effective solution to uh, development problems. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one yeah. thing I think was really un, unknown before. Yes, yeah, so I remember that being mentioned, and it makes perfect sense. I want to think about it. It's, it's a totally reasonable and sort of logical and sort of um, compassionate at the same time. Yeah. Sort of, you know, there's nothing that's particularly cold about that, right? It's not like someone saying the... Um, a better use of resources is to make nicer houses <laughs> in yeah, some area, yeah. right? It's yeah. like, it's a, it's a very, again, it's a very compassionate alternative to yes, another exactly. big problem. So you don't feel as you're giving up something um, important for something that might be sort of questionable. Yeah, you know? exactly. But I was wondering, I think we probably answered a little bit when we talked a bit about how we value things mm-hmm. in terms of preference versus actually just strict economic mm-hmm. um, Value of, of outputs or whatever. Because one of the questions I, I had when I was listening to Lomborg speak was thinking, totally understand nutrition um, in the developing world. But those people in many developing world countries have a certain, the average jobs have a certain average sort of, be a, a GDP associated with the typical jobs in, in, in its given countries, mm-hmm. which is more or less capped given the variety of industry in a certain country. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries have much higher GDPs based on different kinds of jobs and resources and whatever else. Yep. I was wondering then, this is sort of devil's advocate because it's not a compassionate or, sure. or sort of ethical consideration, but mm-hmm. from a financial consideration, mm. could you make an argument to be giving some of this money to wealthy nations to further advance them so that you can get guys going, men and women, who would be otherwise not quite going to university or doing sort of middling university sort of education, pushing their education, their resources, um, so that they end up to make multiplying more, To make more their, Bradley Wongs, basically, To, to right? make more Bradley Wongs, who will then be solving more problems and making more money in those countries. I mean, could you argue that that is a greater financial return on investment than... It's hard to get it. Ethically, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very... No, it's, a, no, it's dubious it's a and a bit callous. No, I think it's a good question. And, and I think... That the the response to that is that maybe, but I'm 
unlikely. Now, the reason why I say that is because uh, in poorer countries, you have uh, you are less likely to have picked the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Right. So there's some serious, serious low hanging fruit in a lot of developing countries. Um, you know, for example, distribution of insecticide treated bed nets to prevent malaria, incredibly inexpensive. Um, Give well the um, non-profit um, charity evaluator puts it somewhere between three to nine thousand dollars US to save a child's life mm-hmm. with by distributing bed nets. I think that's a fucking amazing bargain. Like we we should be everyone who has some spare cash should be donating to um, you know one particular organization against malaria foundation who um, give well recommend because like, th- like let's say, let's take the midpoint $6,000 to save a child's life yeah. is nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, that, that just is, just that's a half a mind. year's tuition for uh Sydney side of preschool. Yeah. Something like that. Right. right. That's like 60 days of childcare in Sydney. Yeah. Something, yeah. <laughs> something yeah like exactly. That. And, and that just, it, it makes me, um, sad that that we have this opportunity to to, to yeah. you know to make such to do such good and it's just not really been you know and it's it taken probably up. answers my question really which is ultimately getting better university students in the west is probably grossly trumped just probably uh, quantitatively yeah. by the access to university to the kids who otherwise wouldn't go there either from being alive or having the cognitive ability to go, right? Yep. So if you can increase the number of university um, applicants by the millions in the developing world, mm. your odds are of producing more more money, more geniuses, more more people who can solve the big problems. Yep. You're probably going to be actually doing a lot more with that money there than you would be by incrementally increasing the access or the resources in the West. Yes, Probably. Exactly. Yep. So it's... Yeah, that makes much more sense. Actually, I think, yes, I, I agree. And and you get a lot of these like who was that? Who was that philanthropist? Was it Bezos or was I can't remember which philanthropist recently um, said uh, who, who was going to give um, a lot of scholarships so that people from underprivileged places in America could go to his alma mater. Was that Bezos? For I don't Penn? know. I can't remember. Uh, what, yeah, whatever. Uh, but uh, and then that's a common that's a common philanthropist um, you know, uh, acti- uh, like. Um, Initiative. Let's go fund scholarships to American universities for underprivileged people. Yeah. Uh, there is a great article from the media organization Vox, and they've got for your for your listener. Uh, right. uh, the, jo- the joke's been made. <laughs> we, can- we have several. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they should get onto um, Future Perfect, which is a whole series about effective altruism on Vox. Anyway, uh-huh. I won't. You know, I won't go into too much more about that. But um, there's a great article there to basically say that. It's great that people um, are doing things for the world and not just using the money on themselves. But yeah. if we, if you know, what we would like to push and is and, and have a discussion about is how do we use funds more effectively and do more uh, do as most good as possible. And the extreme, you know, in all likelihood, providing scholarships for underprivileged kids in America is not going to be anywhere near as good as delivering insecticide treated bed nets yeah. in sub-Saharan Africa. Like. Yeah, it's almost, it's very highly unlikely. Even even if you take into account, yeah. You know, so those, I mean, those are still fairly um, geocentric solutions. Yes, but right. I think the broader point is that giving and doing work in developing countries tends to be way more effective than doing work in richer countries. Sure, just because of the yeah. scale of the problems and the problems that are there. Yeah, and the solutions to those problems, like tuberculosis, for example. 
kills i think recently tuberculosis was named the leading infectious killer in the world it passed hiv aids as mm. the leading infectious killer um kills hundreds of thousands of people uh in india and it's super and, treatable and it's extremely treatable we, it, we we've gotten rid of it in the west for a century perhaps yeah or I don't know, half a century i don't know it's yeah inexpensive yeah. 100 bucks for treatment oh, it'd just, be like finding yeah. out that smallpox is still a problem somewhere yeah which exactly. we all thought we got rid of 40 years ago yeah exactly 50 years ago yeah so now do you guys have a way of stratifying um investments which would be ongoing versus like one-off costs i mean certain things would require a single injection of funds to make a change right yeah. be it like i think justin we we're talking kind of before the show the <clears throat> idea of sort of maybe building a railway or building mm. infrastructure right might mm. be a single one-off thing mm. versus some issues which might require sort of indefinitely sustained funding yeah. um do those get stratified in a way do they get do they get called earlier are there preferences for dealing with one versus the other uh no I or are think they just all broken down sort of reduced to the same and then yeah and we have this discussion I, we have this discussion or at least not we but the, the international development um, community has this um discussion a lot uh, and that's a i think what you're getting at is the issue of sustainability versus yeah band-aid like quote-unquote band-aid solutions so it's something that you have to kind of keep going in there and doing again and again to just you know um versus one-off investment that solves the problem yeah right um and, and if you do the economics correctly um those things kind of even out right okay. so so and and typically those those structural things um, cost a lot, a lot more than the, and I'm, you can't see me, but I'm doing the quote unquote yeah, band aid solutions. I, I don't like the, uh, the the word band aid solutions, and I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, and um, and so it's, for me, it's, it just comes down to well, what, what what's the difference in, in costs and benefits, yeah. right? Like so so maybe a railroad will cost you three billion dollars, and and distributing insecticide um, nets to a to a village will cost you I don't know hundred million. For me, it's like, well, what are the costs and benefits? Is the railroad going to deliver for that one billion much yeah. more benefits than the hundred million? Um, because you can do the hundred million thing ten times, right? Yeah. Um, in ten different villages or ten different regions. Um, I think a really good example of this is in the discussion around malaria. So, how do you get rid of malaria in countries? In the West, and in, say, for example, in America, where you, they used to have malaria, you get rid of it permanently by having proper drainage, proper sewerage systems. Uh, and all of the infrastructure, yeah, infrastructure, bells yeah. and whistles that go around with not having basically stagnant pools of water for mm. for mosquitoes to breed. Yeah, that is very very expensive to do, and in many developing countries don't have the resources, the wherewithal to create proper drainage and maintain it and maintain it. Right. So, uh, if you just look at it in this paradigm between you know what's going to fix the problem versus um, the band aid solution, the band aid solution is just doing the insecticide treated bed nets yeah right that that doesn't solve the issue of malaria per se it does reduce the um the spread of it because if less you know it's a contagious disease so yeah. it's it's a partial temporary solution which is what is i guess the definition of a band-aid is however the partial temporary solution in this case ends up saving lives for hardly and, any money and with malaria in particular i think because it's transmitted by the mosquitoes right it doesn't yes. It's not created by mosquitoes. Yes. Um, if you can reduce the transmission to a certain point, you effectively—it's like having that sort of crowd. What's called the um, crowd immunity. Crowd immunity. Crowd immunity. Right. It's not actually immunity, but it's sort of 
crowd elimination, right? If you can reduce the the vector, well, if you can reduce the infectious population to a certain point, mm. you reduce the power of the vector. True, that's true. But I don't think, I mean, maybe I'll be wrong here, but I don't think you can get rid of malaria with just insecticide-treated bed nets. I mean, maybe you can. But my the broader point that I'm trying to make is that yeah. there are people that will say, hey, malaria, malaria, the insecticide-treated bed nets don't solve the underlying root cause of malaria. Yeah. I just say to them, okay, fine. But by, you know, the Band-Aid solution saves a lot of children's lives yeah. and for them those children that would would have otherwise have died that is the solution that yeah. is the underlying root cause they don't end yeah. up dying from malaria yeah. and and, you, and it happens yeah. right now and it happens right now exactly yeah. and yeah we could wait you know until whatever we could wait until Ghana gets the wherewithal to have perfect drainage and then we're like great we've solved malaria but in the meantime yeah. you've got 20 30 years of unnecessary suffering which is a moral outrage. And I guess that also comes down to one of my other questions, which is similar in a way, which is the idea of an activation energy for certain projects, hmm. you know, where you have a required input hmm. before you get any returns at all. And because maybe the drainage thing would be an example of that. It would take a long time to establish. I mean, at any, a turnaround at any point until you reach your final goal would result in a complete loss of funds with no positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you reach that threshold, once you kind of hit that activation energy of your investment, you then start to see the rewards. Yep. And that's obviously something that's harder to justify, probably harder to cost, I'd imagine, especially because the opportunity risk in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's probably, that's probably a similar sort of... A- well, I think the point is that there's, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong per se with big, costly structural interventions. There's yeah. nothing wrong per se. The point is that you should just do the analysis. Yeah. Maybe your big, the num- costly... It's borne out in the numbers. Yeah, your big, costly investment might be fantastic. Great. Then show then me the numbers it. and do it, um, and tell me that it's better than um, something else. Now, this is all very human centric. Whether yep. it's about um, preferences or even just straight costing, um, how do we work animals? Sort of the the uh, the, the vocal minority, or the non-vocal minority rather, or majority, <laughs> even <laughs> the voiceless yep. majority. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, how do we? Is there a way to factor those guys in? What's the discount applied to a? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and what's the uh, multiplier? We don't. We don't. Uh, in, in Copenhagen consensus, we don't do sure. um, or account for animal suffering or flora, or <laughs> we don't account for animal or floral destruction in so far as what it means to the animals. We sure. do f- um, in so far as what it means to humans, right. right? And which is not, which would almost certainly, or which would, in my opinion, definitely an undervaluation um, yeah. from the animal's perspective. <laughs> They, they would agree. That, yes, I yeah. think so. Uh, so yeah, it's not it's not on our on our radar at all, and I don't know anyone who is doing anything like that. Yeah, sure. Look, yeah. no models can be perfect, right? Yeah. And that is a I, I have no idea how to because until also people are probably if you're using preferencing to mm-hmm. work out value, unless people are on on whole preferencing and valuing animals mm. that they don't see or hear from in the rest of the world mm. it's gonna be hard to actually work that into your model effectively yeah right yeah. i think with you're with, only as strong as the people who are being pulled to work out what exactly we care about yes exactly uh and yeah we we almost exclusively use um secondary literature we, we don't do any uh, of our own primary yeah. um research we do the cost benefit that's that's new mm. um that's usually hasn't been done before but the um, if you do this, this leads to X um, outcome. We don't do that um, at primary analysis. Uh, with the animals, I think that just going back to that, I think that you know the the the, the big argument 
um, for reducing animal suffering doesn't, you know, it's not really invested in cost benefit analysis, though it is invested in um, an examination of the evidence. And that is that there's billions, billions of animals in extreme suffering. And that kind of calculus lends itself quite, without having really hard numbers, you know, to, to a sort of, to a clear conclusion that we should be um, doing less factory farming. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Can I ask you a related question on that front in terms of valuing, how, how you compare between uh, valuing animals to humans, for example? Um, <clears throat> I presume, and I think I heard Bjorn say this, that um, a life is a life and you, you value all human lives equally as you potentially should ethically, right? Mm-hmm. How do you avoid the potential mismatch then between having... Uh, an equal value of human lives, but then the world's power structure, who are going to be presumably responding to whatever you're suggesting we do with mm-hmm. you know, our, our money. Um, how do you respond? How, how do you um, deal with that mismatch between, okay, most of the world's people are in developing countries and yet most of the power and most of the sort of levers or whatnot might come from smaller countries that have less population who are getting valued? Do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Is, mm, sort of. Like, I'm not, is it like issues, issues that might be like huge for people with for parts of the world where there's huge populations might not be that big for the powerful centers of the world where there's not a not where they're not as large in terms of the population. Is that in, in it? Uh, I'm sort of following you. I'd, are you I'm, asking that if sort of one of the roots of a lot of the data regarding value is about options preferences and whatnot does it matter who's actually providing that initial grassroots data no i I guess it's it's more of a question trying to dig into the self-interest of people right so you've got um largely these initiatives aimed at trying to help the the developing world right and i think people in the developed world would agree that these are probably worthwhile initiatives right Mm -hmm. but they are initiatives that might not impact them in particular right so maybe the um Global warming thing's an example, right? Mm. Most people in the developing developed world would go, global warming's the most important thing ever. Mm-hmm. And you're going to turn around to them and say, uh, well, actually, it's not. So how, how do you bridge that gap between the, the large population of people who require these initiatives and the smaller population of people who have the power to actually carry them out? Uh, okay, I see what you mean. Um, and, and yeah, well, it's a good question. And it's, I mean, I don't have a really good answer for you. It's an imperfect... Uh, lobbying and, and trying to influence policy is a completely imperfect science. We provide the numbers and sometimes they listen to, obviously, and this is an obvious, not, not a controversial statement, people don't always make efficient policy. They, they do what they feel is mm. best sometimes or they feel what's in their political interest perhaps. Uh, and all we're trying to do is inject some level of rationality so that it shifts the conversation slightly. Um, and, and that's the best we can do, I think. Like, and, and, if, and if a particular group feels that, hey, you've put the wrong valuation on this um, or you know, this should be valued more, they're just going to do it anyway. They're just going to do whatever they think is, should be valued more. And, and, and the idea that things should be valued, uh, are going to be valued differently by different people is totally, um, I think it's totally correct that things will be valued differently by different people. Uh, and, and the only way around that is just to be super transparent about your assumptions and say, this mm. is how we value something. If you believe this is worth more or worth less, then you can do your own calculations and come up with your own um, 
prioritized solution. I would much prefer that as you know that people put different valuations um, than just kind of make things by gut, right? Yeah. Then, yeah. Now, can you give me a good reason why you guys, your organization, shouldn't be franchised to replace the world's governments altogether <laughs> <laughs> instead of having what we have now, which is a series of ministers across multiple cabinets around the world who are largely uneducated or unspecialized in their fields <laughs> and making decisions. Um, why don't we have a series of economists who are running these calculations instead of consulting for the governments, replacing them and coming up with what the actual efficient uses of our funds are. Uh, it was true. That feels like that would answer and quell a lot of unrest that every council city town government has with their uh, um, disapproval of generally all the <laughs> decisions that are made for them uh, yeah I think obviously I think a lot of sociologists and anthropologists and other you know, people from other disciplines would, would, would not agree with that uh, <laughs> well we'll have to get uh, them on the show that's the yeah. big question we're going to be asking yeah. is why are we not going to replace world governments with economists I think that yeah, I don't know how to answer that question really well, but essentially, <laughs> sorry, yeah, like, it, it just seems like it just seems so reasonable, and it's just hard to argue with good evidence, right? I think that's where we yeah. come from, and it's just so kind of heartwarming and reassuring. It's when I hear about this stuff happening, it's a total like it's like being unburdened because emotionally <laughs> you'd be like, oh, cool, guys are actually really crunching the numbers, looking at big data, and trying to figure out what the actual best thing they can do is for a population given. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, limited resources. Yep. And with very little motion being involved. Now, it's great that you guys obviously consult with the world's governments, not just the UN, but obviously, mm-hmm. you know, yep. you could be consulting with the New South Wales government just as well as yep. Bain could or something like that, right? Yep. yep. Um, but it just seems that it'd be nice to hear that happening more or if that was the actual only modus to get answers the governments were using. I, I think a partial answer to the, your question uh, is that uh, cost-benefit analysis, at least in the way that it's traditionally done, gives you the aggregate societal costs and benefits. Mm. Um, it doesn't always, and even if it does, doesn't provide you the solutions to the fact that benefits and costs fall on different people, different sure. groups of people. Sure. And that's really where politics comes in, right? How do you trade off? Overall, to society, this might be a great deal, but like within individual units, subunits within that society, it's going to be a bad deal and, and a fantastic deal for others. And, and that's the role of politics. And economists have no good answer to those questions. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think I have, I have one more question. Have you got any more questions, Jess? Well, I want to know what's getting, what gets Brad's goat. Okay. I feel like he needs to... Yeah, he oh, needs to just... Answer something frivolous for us. Okay, one more real question. Yeah. It's only kind of half a real question. Yeah. Uh, and then a purely frivolous question. Yeah. So... Um, people in the West were obviously concerned about climate change. We want the world's governments to address climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, that th- those aren't really our funds for them to be moving around. So it's totally fair for that to be done with whatever. But when you see people who are trying to do on their own scale, things like putting in solar panels, um, buying electric cars mm-hmm. at a significant personal cost, but yep. doing it for reasons such as I can, I can, I can afford it. I'm going to buy a Tesla because I will do, I will bear the financial load to do my part to change mm-hmm. the world. Yep. On a micro scale, that's still probably bad investment in terms of changing the world. Right? Do we need to change how people think about that as well? I, I think we do. And if you care a lot about climate change, my guess is that buying a Tesla isn't the most efficient use of your 
hundred thousand dollars or however much a Tesla yeah. costs these days. Yeah. Right. For example, there are organizations where you can purchase carbon credits at the market value mm-hmm. and reduce, like let's say you took your 100,000 bucks that you would have spent on a Tesla yeah. um, and then bought the carbon credits, effectively taking them off the market so that another organization can't, or another company can't use them, yeah. right? Uh, and, and go about your daily activities. So you've essentially taken that, that carbon uh, quota out of the economy. My guess is, though I haven't crunched the numbers, that's going to be a much more efficient use of your 100000 bucks than buying a Tesla. And not quite as sexy. Not quite as sexy. Very hard to like, show off to other people. Yeah. You, can't stick the, you, know, you can't stick that certificate on you know, the top of your car and people notice. Well, maybe you guys, we need to like, um, sort of manifest carbon credits to something more tangible, like POGs. <laughs> or like like you Pandora charms or you know some th- way to have more of a conspicuous carbon consumption conspicuous conspicuous carbon credit consumption the, is the, yeah. the four C's yeah exactly we need to have some I don't know some sole well, panel t-shirt that you can maybe wear. that's the next big like jewelry company right is some way to kind of tangentialize or it makes like make tangible carbon credits <laughs> so you can make them luxury items yeah exactly I mean, that's perhaps what a Tesla is, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, Jeez. All right. uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go too far there, but, but my, my point is that I, I have no issue with people caring a lot about climate change. And yeah. actually there are some reasonable and, and decent solutions to addressing climate change, at least from a cost benefit perspective. The, the thing that I think there's is I want to um, reinforce is that if you care about climate change, then do a little bit of digging do a little bit of data analysis or rely on someone else who's who you trust that has done some analysis and try and figure out the the best use of your limited funds yeah to achieve whatever outcome you believe well again if you boil it down a concern about climate change isn't specifically a concern about weather it's a concern about the effects of that weather yeah right yes which is people yes and so if you you reduce if again when we try and find that denominator it comes down to making changes to help people right yeah and maybe we don't need to be so locked into the brand yeah. of change that we're kind of identifying with, right? It's yeah. like, again, it is, it's brand allegiance and, in a way, isn't it? And, and this is a good, I don't know what your question was going to be about what gets you, my goat, yeah. and, but I can, I can start talking about something. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that is yeah. my question. What yeah. gets you goat? What's getting you yeah. So like, and, and this relates to climate change, but it relates to any controversial topic of discussion, whether it's vaccines or GMOs um, or immigration, is that in abstract, any social problem should have a spectrum of policy options Mm -hmm. right when you get when a social problem and i don't know how this happens and i don't know when this happens in the conversation but when a a social problem becomes a um, political uh, controversy those that spectrum of options disappears and you end up with a binary two. Yes. Yeah. You end up You're with forward two against options. It. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So climate change, we have to do everything possible to solve climate change. And that in, in the, um, not everything possible. We have to put up solar panels, wind turbines. Yeah. Electric sol- cars. Electric cars to solve climate change. That yeah. is the you know, solution. That is the solution. And all of the, uh, and on the other side of the coin, the argument is that climate change doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Th- th- that's that's yeah. the bifurcation now. Yeah. And so when someone like your boss or anyone else in the middle says something like, "We need moderation," or "We need sort of a uh, like a more varied portfolio," yeah, people think that's that's tantamount to saying, 
uh, I'm a climate change nihilist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and when, when you get this bifurcation of the uh, potential policy options, you know, one, you limit this, the, the space for policy debate. But the other thing that happens, which also really annoys me, is that you stop arguing about the policies and the merits and the rationality of the policies and you end up arguing about what type of person you are. Mm. Like, I stand for this because I yeah. want to project myself sure. as this type of person with these yeah, types that's, of values. That, that's virtue signaling, uh, that's yeah. brand loyalty, that's all yeah. those issues. And again, it's part of the, the lack of nuance we have in public conversation in general about almost every issue, I think. And that's something we, Jess and I, are particularly sort of sensitive to, I yeah. think. And we're just, one of the reasons why I actually started this podcast was you know, about a year ago, we were kind of both quite vocal to each other about an interest in um, in finding real answers mm. and and appreciate living in that nuance of you know of not being forced into a binary situation of you yep. love it or you hate it and sort of signing up to one of these camps because uh, the truth lies somewhere in between always mm. and there and there is data mm. and there are answers yeah for some things and so we're very interested in yeah kind of looking toward the evidence mm-hmm. and trying to kind of make specific opinions that are yeah that are supported uh, well brad i think that's yeah. probably i think we've we've got a lot done that's good I, all my questions my my sequel to the podcast i heard has been <laughs> i think a success yeah thanks for having me I, I it's so rare that i get to talk like this long about the work i do so it's, yeah, well i think cool. it's like it's such an <laughs> it's such an amazing organization and it's such an intuitive organization that it I'm sure people have or maybe would have thought that something like this has existed for a long time and it's amazing mm. that it hasn't. Yeah. And I also think it's incredible. That I'd be surprised if people didn't want to hear more of this discussion because mm. I think it's really reassuring when they find out more about how these decisions are being made um, and so what goes into them and to appreciate what it means to have evidence-based um, uh, yeah, support. Yep. So yeah, cool. Thanks for coming. Yep. Cool. That is the end of our podcast, Jeremy Zion. If you want to get in touch... We have a, an email address, jeremyzionpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm in the midst of trying to get a you know, P.O. box for uh, other for correspondents. <laughs> uh, our, our anti-social media stance is uh, giving us other avenues or this, necessitating other avenues for correspondence. Yeah, this is our last episode of 2018. True. I think, right? Yeah. Happy yeah. New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, unless we squeeze one out in the next 36 hours. I think this is it. Hi. To all the listeners, ciao.